0: I said, let's just do one table a night. And I remember the second night we had an older couple. It was the wife's birthday. They hadn't left their house in three months. And the wife was like, my husband loves ducks. So we did a roasted duck breast with cherries. And a song came on and they got up and they were dancing in the restaurant like it was their dining room. It was so beautiful. And we said, the restaurant is yours for the night.
1: Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. Let's dive in. Many people use the term Creole cuisine loosely without ever realizing what it is. In point of fact, like the people, Creole food is a blend of the various cultures of New Orleans, including West African, French, Spanish, Caribbean, Native American, among many, many others. Well, with me today is someone whose own experiences somewhat mirror that amazing blend of flavors and backgrounds, Chef Nina Compton. A graduate from the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, she began her professional journey at Danielle in New York City, working alongside world-renowned chef and restaurateur Danielle Boulou. She competed on season 11 of Top Chef and was the season 11 runner-up and voted fan favorite by viewers. She also received guidance from the legendary Leah Chase, civil rights trailblazer, chef of the equally legendary Dookie e. Chase. In June 2015, Chef Compton opened her own restaurant in New Orleans, Louisiana, Compère Lapin, serving Caribbean-style cuisine. In March of 2018, Chef Compton opened Bywater American Bistro. And yes, much to her own disbelief, till she saw it in print, In 2018, Chef Compton won the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef in the South. Equally noteworthy, she was for many years the first daughter of St. Lucia. Her father, Sir John George Meldon Compton, being the first Prime Minister of St. Lucia after British rule. Her time there also influencing her palate, her skill sets, and flavor profiles. So I'm hungry, I hope you're hungry. Let's dive in and welcome Chef Nina Compton.
0: Good morning, how are you, Adam?
1: I am outstanding and I'm honored to talk to you.
0: That was a very big intro.
1: <laughs> You're a very big talent. I gotta, it's about rising to the occasion. No, but I wanted to make sure we left no stone unturned and then we're gonna dive in into the questions as we break down the meals that made you. So I'd like to start off with the meals of your childhood. You grew up in St. Lucia, you truly indulged in island life because, in addition, to this incredible political career, your dad had a farm in the southern part of the island and he was a banana and coconut farmer and you were working in kitchens at an early age as, correct me if I'm wrong, your grandmother Phyllis's unpaid sous chef, correct? Yes,
0: yes, yes, pretty much, yes, yes.
1: So your dad goes on to the legendary LSE, the London School of Economics. I understand your grandmother is a native of Britain. Yes. A place where I admit I've spent a, a very a significant amount of time and then moved to St. Lucia after world war II. but having British roots, she was making things like fish and chips and tea sandwiches midday. So my question, as we dive into the meals of your early childhood with this interesting mix of global food cultures in your early upbringing, what is the meal for you that always brings you back home and brings you back into the kitchen with your grandmother? Like, is there any meal that was a ritual for you both? Take us into that kitchen and take us through the ingredients in that meal.
0: So, my grandmother loved flying fish. Okay. So, that was like her her big treat. And she'd get really excited if she got from, you know, flying fish from the market. And she's like, today we're going to eat really good. And she would clean them and she'd marinate them with a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of um, lemon juice and parsley. And then she'd just dust them. In breadcrumbs and just pan fry them. Mm -hmm. And then she'd make a parsley sauce with roasted marble potatoes. She would just roast those gently, and that was the meal. But it was just seeing her eyes light up when she had this fish. She was so excited. She's like, We're gonna eat so good today, Nina. And she would just, she was always in the kitchen. No matter if it was 6 a.m., 8 a.m., she was always in the kitchen cooking and just, You know, the kitchen's the most active part of anybody's house, and it's the most social part. So whenever you wake up and your grandmother's cooking something, you know, everybody just joins the fun.
1: One of our producers is from the Caribbean. Okay. And she says, her direct quote, The kitchen is a gathering place for generations of women to come together and make food and maybe gossip a bit. Maybe someone will be peeling peas, someone else is hovering over the stove, someone else might be grating fresh coconut for the stew. So the question that I ask you is, was the kitchen a space for the women in your family as well? And what would you guys make together other than this delicious flying fish dish that you mentioned? Can you bring us into that space of all of you cooking and sharing together? So
0: that time normally happens the biggest gathering is Christmas time. Okay. So my grandmother, my aunt, my mom and I have three other sisters. So all of us would be in the kitchen and you know some of the things you know growing up they would be complaining about the husbands and they don't do anything and I do all the work around the house and all those things. It was a you know inside of that but it was just also just you know just learning the techniques and just passing those things on that my mom loved to bake, so she was teaching us as kids how to bake. Okay. So there was a lot of that in the kitchen, but my dad loved to cook as well, too. He would make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... What
1: was his, uh, his contribution to the kitchen?
0: So what he loved to do, whenever he came back from the farm, he would bring back all the citrus. He'd bring back bananas, he'd bring back breadfruits. He loved making, like, local juices, so whether it's passion fruit with lime juice, that was always something we had. We always had juice growing up in the house. But my dad was an avid sailor. He loved being underwater. Oh, really? And, you know, in the Caribbean, it's, you have a big uh, sailing community, so he would go sailing quite often. And whenever we'd go as a family, during the Easter time, we'd sail down to the Islands where he's from. There's a big sailing regatta, and he would always be racing boats and just being part of the action. But his contribution, he would make like a one-pot stew. Okay. So it'd be pumpkin, peppers, beef, chicken, just everything is thrown in. But there was one day so I I'm like, I'm like, wow, this tastes really good. And he pulls me on the side, and he whispers in my ear, he's like, my secret ingredient is peanut butter. Really? And I'm like, I would never thought that, that. was for the stew? It was for the stew, but it made sense because it was adding this creamy, nutty flavor that it's kind of like very subtle, but it's, it was delicious i I can still taste it
1: man i i want some now i i by the way i find ways of working peanut butter into multiple dishes (laughs) like my sesame a chef that i once worked with taught me because i loved uh sesame cold noodles he said adam sesame oil tahini green onion peanut butter oh that's a good one i want to talk now about the meals of your mentors You meet the iconic Leia Chase, the queen of Creole cuisine, she of Dookie Chase fame, massive civil rights advocate, her restaurant uh, in the Treme, you know, gathering place for the NAACP and freedom writers during the civil rights movement. And I can't imagine what this must have been like for you, but you've often said how Leia would say how proud she was of you and that you had no choice but to succeed in this male dominated industry. And that if you made it, you would really be leading the way for other black female chefs to make it in New Orleans. And, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about the weight of an icon like that saying that to you? That's
0: huge pressure. Yeah. Um. And, you know, Leah Chase is, she was so active in her kitchen. And I didn't believe it until I moved to New Orleans. And we became, you know, very close friends. And she'd come to my restaurant. I would go to her restaurant. And every time I'd come, I'd bring her flowers. And I'm like, this is for Miss Leah. And they're like, oh, just go back. She's in the kitchen. And I'm like, Miss Leah, you're in your 80s. You need to relax and, you know, put your feet up. And she's like, no, 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 I need to be in my kitchen. But for her, being in the kitchen, she's surrounded by her family, literally by her family. Mm -hmm. Her daughters are involved in the kitchen. Her grandson, now her great-great-granddaughter, is one of the chefs at the wow. restaurant now. So when you talk about generational, it's passed on. It, it's the sense of pride. And I remember the day she passed, they kept Dookie Chase open the next day. And we came and I, you know, we called them up and we said, we want to come and just drop some meals off for you because I know this is such a big loss for you. And I'm like, you guys are actually open today? And they said, this is what she would have wanted. Wow. She wanted to just keep it going. And she's she was such a strong woman. And I remember going to her funeral. So many of her staff had been with her for 30, 40 years. And they were oh. talking about working with her and how she was so strong and never listened to any men. She was always pushing through. I can do it myself. I'm better than you. I'm faster than you. And she would say all these things. And I'm like, it makes so much sense because... She never let anything get in her way.
1: Well, with all these incredible experiences and conversations you've had with her, did you ever make a meal with her or did you ever make any dish that she really raved about? So when
0: she came to Pen, she came, I would say, two years before she passed. And we had a joke-spiced redfish. Okay. And, you know, I, I cooked the fish personally for her. I brought it out. And I came after she finished and I said, how was it? And she said, you know, if I had a bigger stomach, I would have ate three of those. So I'm like, oh, thank God I didn't mess up.
1: Wow. But,
0: you know, to get a blessing like that from somebody who is so judgmental and so tough. And a lot of people don't know this. So when we did Top Chef, we had a gumbo challenge. And I have never really made gumbo, you know, I have, eaten it but i didn't really you know and i remember i put a poached egg <laughs> in this in the gumbo Uh-oh. and she was so furious she's like why would you put an, a poached egg and i'm like well an egg goes good on everything and she was just like not in gumbo and i was just <laughs> mortified but I mean, now I know I was just trying to reinvent something. But that's the, that's the beauty also about New Orleans is that when it comes to tradition and things, you just don't change. It is what it is. And as good as it is, just leave it as it is.
1: You know, you, you put that IG tribute out where you related that gumbo story. And then you mentioned how in this male dominated place, you know, you come back into her restaurant, you see her, and she evoked the same aura as your granny. Yes. And after the gumbo thing, was it the redfish? Was that the dish you made uh, yes. for her? Yes. That's yes. What you, and was it purpose-driven? Was that like, I'm not going to miss again. I'm not going to get too clever by half. I'm not making a redfish crudo.
0: Exactly. I am just going <laughs> to cook it as it is and let her be the judge and hopefully I don't mess up. But, you know, she is. she is very small in stature. But when she walks into a room, she has such a presence. And, you know, she she's the boss.
1: How has being in New Orleans changed or shaped your approach to food or the the flavors with which you work? You
0: know, I've, I've lived here for almost eight years. And what I love about living in New Orleans, people are not afraid of flavor and salt yeah. and spice.
1: Yeah.
0: When I first moved here, it was Easter weekend. And we had cooked for a, a friend for a surprise birthday party. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh you know, Easter, we're going to be doing crawfish bisque. Mm-mm. And talking about women being in the kitchen, talking about things, um, she said it's her mom, her sisters, her kids, all the women are in the kitchen making this crawfish bisque. So it starts off, from, so a lot of people don't know this, they take their heads out, they cook the tails, take the meat out, chop the meat up with the Trinity and everything else, and they stuff the heads, and that is part of the garnish for the bisque. Oh, my. So when she gave me this Tupperware container of bisque, and I'm like, oh, there's heads floating in here. She didn't strain the bisque out, you know? But then when I looked, when I opened it up, and I took my first bite, I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much flavor, and there's so many layers. And what I love about living in this city the most is that it's not just the professional chefs that know how to cook. These are home cooks that can throw down with any professional chef that went to culinary school or has a three-star Michelin. They can throw down. And I mean, it is like the best food you'll ever get.
1: Well, as someone who loves that city and loves the food there, whenever I hear anyone praise it and praise, you know, the chefs that have a fraction of the formal training you do that means the world to me personally so I love that I absolutely love that and the food really does come from your heart it does whether you're having barbecue shrimp at Dini's or at Lauses by the track or and I, I remember I got, I got hell for eating the shrimp with the shell on but I didn't want any of that barbecue buttery <laughs> to go I'm like whatever it all comes out in the wash I'm gonna eat the shell it's all good All right, so now I want to talk about the meals of some of your biggest moments. We go back to 2015. You're in this city that somewhat reminds you of home New Orleans. You just opened your first restaurant, Comper Lapin, which is named one of America's 38 best restaurants by Eater, which is amazing. But Comper Lapin literally means companion rabbit, but I think most people may not be aware it's a reference to a legendary folklore character spanning from Africa to the Caribbean to enter the southern U.S. that most people probably know as Br'er Rabbit. Rabbit, yes. Br'er Rabbit, Brother Rabbit, but Comper Lapin. How did you choose the name? So when I
0: knew that I was going to open a restaurant in New Orleans, I wanted to bridge the gap between the Caribbean and New Orleans. And I started doing research because there's a lot of similarities, a lot of different names that they use, that we use back in the Caribbean as well. And we came here, we didn't have a name when we initially moved two months before we opened a restaurant. And we went to Laura Plantation mm-hmm. and the, the book is actually there at Laura Plantation. And I, it's the exact same book that I grew wow. up with. So I said, that's, that's meant to be, this is, this is the name. And I'm like, people might butcher the name, but it still means something to me. And it's, you know, found here in New Orleans and also in the Caribbean.
1: You open your first restaurant. You're no longer working on someone else's menu. You're taking full creative autonomy of your own menu. One cannot argue, and I mean this with no ass kissery involved, the impact of the goat curry with the sweet potato and gnocchi when you dropped it. And I mean, there are videos that you've done that are available on YouTube just on this dish because it is just that impactful. What I want to know is, what is a dish that you knew had to be on the menu, that not only you knew, because let's be honest, restaurants operate on these super thin margins. We want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. a business. What is one that you knew would not only be a knockout, but connected you to your roots?
0: Well, it would definitely be the curried goat. And when I thought about doing the, the dish, I could have done with white rice, which is normally what you find in the Caribbean, or you can do it in a roti. But I said, you know, I think that this is it goes back to holding my skills, working for other chefs okay. and taking those techniques and using that. And I said, I'm living in the South. You find sweet potatoes or yams all over the Correct. place. So why not put this in the dish? It makes it very unique because you don't see sweet potato gnocchi with curry goat anywhere. And told my husband, I'm like, you know, I'm going to put it on the opening menu. It probably won't sell and I'll take it off after a month. So the first week that we are getting prepped up, I owed one goat and we portioned it and we did a yield test and everything else. Fast forward to two months after, we were getting seven goats a week from the farmer because we just couldn't keep up. It doesn't matter any day of the week, that goat curry is the number one dish that. Any night of the week.
1: Jesus. For those people that haven't seen the video yet, and hopefully they will after hearing you on this podcast, that they'll go check out. Can you take us just quickly through the flavor profile and construction of the dish? And correct me if I'm wrong, the title is Goat Curry over Sweet Potato Gnocchi, correct? Yes, Just correct. really, could you give us sort of a synopsis of the flavors, the ingredients, and the way the dish is constructed and plated for those people that may be unfamiliar? Sure. Hit it, chef.
0: So we get the, uh, the goat's hole. We break them out into their primals. We brine them for eight hours in a salt water brine. Take that out. The next day, we roast it very high heat. While it's roasting, we're caramelizing onions, ginger, turmeric, and then we make a huge sachet with cardamom curry leaves star anise coriander scotch bonnet a little bit of clove black peppercorns garam masala and then we basically roast the goat with that and then we add the goat stock and braise that on the bone take that out and then refortify that braising liquid with the same foundational spices i talked okay. about and then coke and milk of course
1: You know, the pandemic hit every restaurant hard. Yours, you know, you've been very vocal about. Reservations were low. You had to lay off the staff at both restaurants, which you've been very vocal about how heartbreaking that was for you. Did a few drive-through pop-ups to sort of help pay the bills until you are able to reopen. But before you shut down, and I thought this was really, really, really cool. You made sure your staff knew how important it was. That everything was perfect for the folks that did show up to eat at the restaurant, because despite everything that was happening, they showed up to enjoy your food. And personally, as someone who, whether it's my mom or my grandma teaching me, or the chefs with whom I was able to work teaching me, cutting corners and good enough is never good enough, but one of the things that I love is that in the in the midst of all of this, you realize, especially in New Orleans, the value of a good home-cooked meal.
0: When the pandemic hit, I saw New York shut down, Chicago shut down. And I'm like, this is New Orleans. We're not going to shut down. And then two days after, we were shut down. And it was kind of a, a shocking moment because we didn't know what to do. And... We got phone calls, a lot of people, a lot of chefs in the restaurants got phone calls to cook for frontline workers. And that was the first step of like giving me hope and satisfaction because you have these people working 16, 18 hours, 20 hours, no days off, straight through, tired, but they'd open these boxes and they were just like, oh my God, thank you so much. This really makes me very happy. And as time went on, you know, we were doing different themed pop-ups, trying to get people out of their homes. And one of the things that really made me happy, when we reopened Babs, I told my husband, I'm like, this is when we were operating at 25% occupancy. I said, let's just do one table a night. And my husband's like, what? Are you crazy? And I'm like, yeah, we'll just do a beautiful tasting menu. And that table, that couple, that family of five or six, they had the restaurant to themselves. And I remember the second night, we had an older couple. It was the wife's birthday. They hadn't left their house in three months. This was their first night out. And we called them up and he said, is there any special dishes you want us to make? And the wife was like, my husband loves ducks. So we did like, you know, a roasted duck breast with cherries. And we asked each guest if they like any special music. And they came in and we said, the restaurant is yours for the night. Wow and a song came on and they got up and they were dancing in the restaurant like it was their dining room. It was so beautiful.
1: Do you remember and the song? It,
0: I think it was um, it's an Al Green song. What was it called? It'll, it'll come to me. But it okay. was one of those old songs and they were just enjoying it. And for me, it was delivering the food aspect but also creating a memory for people that were scared to come out to eat. And to have the restaurant to yourself, it was, that was like the most, the highlight of the pandemic for me.
1: So I want to ask you, what was bringing you personally comfort, hope, and solace meal-wise during this uncertain time?
0: I, I love cheese. Okay. Cheese is my downfall. Cheese, like my husband, he's like, oh, you love the stinky Cheese. Give me a crusty baguette uh-huh. and a pois, and I'm happy.
1: All right. See, listen, I want to live in a world free of lactose intolerance.
0: <laughs> That's my cheese. And that is really my treat on my days off.
1: Okay. What's your husband's, by the way? What was he judging you? What, like, was he there having a hot pocket going, man, you got <laughs> stinky cheese? And you're like, bro, you're eating a hot pocket. Pretty
0: close. He always <laughs> has a PB&J. That's his thing.
1: We're going to move through to the meals of your dreams now. And my final question, you know, New Orleans has this incredibly rich history, whether it's its own like history of its foundation and its Spanish and French names and everything. I mean, you know, the there's amazingly distinct Culinary traditions and people will talk about Louisiana and they'll talk about Paul Proudhon, Justin Wilson, as we mentioned, Emeril and now John Besh, and so on and so forth. But the food culture really and truly, in my opinion, I started going to New Orleans in 1992 I mean, just massively, massive changes uh, with Katrina and stuff. You know, I don't think that you ever would have seen, you know, local pizzerias and all kinds of wonderful, like, in New York, we think of this big, broad canvas of all this food. But I remember in New Orleans, so much of it was dedicated to hurricanes and gumbo and etouffee and jambalaya and the stuff that sort of was right in the sweet spot of, of tourists, unless you went outside and you know, Katrina to the pandemic affecting it. There were all these things, but in spite of detractors and meteorological catastrophes, New Orleans has truly continued to rebuild, come back, show a diversity of its pantry, embrace the Vietnamese influence that it has coming from New Orleans East and Chalmette and so on and so forth. But you're right in the mix. And anything I can say is the perspective of someone that loves the city, has friends there and eats there, but I'm not in the mix. And I'm not a restaurateur in that that fame. is I mean, it's one of my top five eating cities globally. My question for you is, what do you think is the future for the NOLA food scene? What are you looking forward to eating that chefs are cooking up? And what is your dream for where the NOLA food scene is going to go in the next 10 or 20 years?
0: Well, I think that what's what's happening in your and just like any other city, you see a lot of the ethnic foods getting a little bit of shine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot more chefs having the confidence to cook Ethiopian food, and over the pandemic, we saw a lot of people doing. Chef Serene was doing food from Senegal. Then you had foul mouth Noah that was doing you know Japanese skewers. So you had a lot of people that are doing things out of. Necessity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and because they want, they wanted to express their talent, and it stuck, and people are very receptive to that, and that's the beauty of this city: is that people here they want something new, but in the other hand, there's always the old traditional restaurants that will always live here. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in this beautiful mix of you know stuck in the past but still moving forward and i think that we're going to see more of that happy balance between both restaurant styles
1: are there any meals or any particular types of things you know
0: i think the african cuisine i think a lot of things in the pandemic a lot of people are just trying to backtrack to their roots so you see a lot of the focus on things like fonio um you know things like yuca all of those things okra is definitely more focused on you see more uh, African peanut sauces and on on menus. So you see a lot of those things that people are just trying to retrace their roots.
1: Gotcha. Well, I I love that, and I I love that you are have your finger on the pulse to be able to share that. And I'm gonna like book a ticket the <laughs> second I get off the plane. So we like to finish a little bit of a rapid fire segment, ask you a few questions about some of your favorites, and I always sort of tailor. One question at the end, specifically for that guest. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, best pizza topping?
0: I actually do mine a little bit different. Okay. I put Caesar salad on top of my margarita pizza, and I fold that, and then I eat it.
1: Try it out. Yo, give me a pizza and a salad. (laughs) That's awesome. Best vegetable to eat raw? A carrot. Okay. Favorite cookbook of all time?
0: Manresa by David Kinch.
1: Mm-hmm. Favorite condiment?
0: Uh, mustard.
1: Dijon yellow creole. Dijon. So I just want to be specific. <laughs> Best dip for french fries. You don't judge me, but ranch. <laughs> I don't I don't judge. I don't Yo, I do not judge. <laughs> Favorite fast food item.
0: The milkshake at
1: Shake Shack. Favorite kitchen appliance?
0: A mandolin. Oh, appliance in my kitchen, my Vitamix.
1: That's cool. But listen, E40, the rapper E40 said tongs. I gave it to him. (laughs) What's your favorite song that you like to cook to?
0: Oh, favorite song would be, that's a tough one. It would be actually anything from Steel Pulse or Blood Orange. Okay. (laughs) Two different extremes.
1: (laughs) No, spoke to me. I had a babysitter who listened to Steel Pulse and Black Uhuru growing up. Oh, nice. Love it. Love it. Okay. And this is a special one for you, Chef. Everyone. When they go to New Orleans, they all go to Cafe Du Monde for beignets. They go to Central Grocery for muffalada. They go get po boys from D'Amelisi's to Parkway to Mahoney's to Johnny's to Russell's Shortstop and Metairie if they know what's what. They go to r and Seafood and the Banks of train. But what is the one food that people visiting New Orleans need to start trying and embracing that they have not done so yet?
0: I think anything with alligator really yeah I think you find a love like alligator sausages or you find it fried it's not on many menus but I think if you definitely see it try it out
1: okay you heard it from the legend herself I thought for sure you were going to go with snowballs
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one too shout out, good one. Wiz.
1: shout out snow is shout out snow is on magazine street chef thank you so much for all the time thank you for all of your talent Your recipes are a delight to read. I love your interviews. I love what you're about. And thank you for taking the time.
0: My pleasure. And thank you. It's been, I've never laughed this much. It's good, so good for my soul. Thank you. Thank that you. means
1: the world to me. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us for the Meals That Made Me. We hope you enjoyed this career spanning interview with amazing chef Nina Compton, that you're inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood, your mentors, your travels, and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future. That concludes season one of The Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. Thank you to everyone who has listened, everyone who has subscribed, and we hope to have you back for season two. And until then, we hope that your meals continue to take you places now and into the future. Eat mightily and chew carefully. This podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richmond. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our associate producers are Nina Pollack and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella, thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com we firstwefeast or at First We Feast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you enjoyed all of these interviews and you want to hear more, well then drop us a five-star review and we thank you for listening to The Meals That Made Me.